This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Matt Seleski, who curated the awesome Paleo Art Show at SVP this year. We have Dinosaur of the Day, Crichton Pelta slash Crichtonsaurus. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including a big court case, which is really interesting, and a new dinosaur. I like those new dinosaurs. Yeah, you're going to like this one too. <laughs> But first, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we would like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Andrew Barling, and Ricky. Yeah, thank you everybody for your support. We really appreciate it. And Garrett says I should mention that I'm sick, and that's why I sound a little raspy. <laughs> yeah. I'll try my best not to cough. Yeah, she caught a cold almost immediately as soon as we got to London, and it has been lingering for a couple weeks now. Hopefully it'll be gone soon. And this is also the first full episode we've recorded since getting back from London, so I wanted to give some highlights about what we saw while we were there. Maybe you saw some posts on our Instagram, too. Yes, that ended up being where we posted. <laughs> so the first dinosaur-related place we went to was the London Museum of Natural History. Oh, yeah, we went to that right away. Yeah, it was pretty much like we got in, we went to sleep, we woke up, and then we went to the museum right away. <laughs> but the first dinosaur that we saw there was Sophie the Stegosaurus. Oh, yeah, in a really great part of the museum, wonderful background and the way that's lit up and everything is just beautiful. Yeah, you go up an escalator through like this red tunnel, sort of like the formation of Earth around you, and then it tells you all about like geological processes. But Sophie is really cool, kind of down below it. And then the dinosaur exhibit is also pretty interesting. It's like a really tightly packed maze is kind of how I would describe it. You have to look literally in all directions, even <laughs> above you. Yes, because it's like... They wanted to put in as much dinosaur stuff as possible, obviously. So the rest of the museum is kind of a typical layout where there's one huge entry and, you know, often multiple exits. And it's just a big open room with stuff kind of around the edges and a little bit in the middle. But this one, it's like there's only one way to go in and then you do a very tight zigzag all over the place mm -hmm. so that they could jam in as much as possible. And the only way out is to make it all the way through this huge <laughs> zigzag. And we were there on a Saturday, too, so it was very crowded. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty crowded. That was definitely the most crowded part of the museum for good reason. And 
and they have a lot of really good stuff in there. They have an animatronic T-Rex that looks nearly identical to the one we saw in Taichung, Taiwan, which kind of surprised us because it's in it's like halfway through the exhibit and then you're like, oh, there's an animatronic. That's well, it's random. off in its own little room. Yeah. And then like Sabrina was saying, there are like dinosaurs everywhere. So they actually have some of them on kind of platforms above your head. Yeah, so like a, a little, mass of spondylus. Yeah, weirdly, things that aren't flying in any sort of way. Like Some of them made sense. Some of the raptors. Kind of. Like they were going to pounce on you. A little bit, yeah. They had them like peeking over the edge. But then there's just, yeah, like you said, a random sauropodomorph kind of up there. And there were some really cool things, too, that you would miss if you didn't turn around. Like sometimes they had fossils on the backside of a display from an earlier area. So you kind of had to go slow and look around a lot. I also thought that the blue whale looked really great in the main hall. Mm -hmm. Probably better than Dippy did there. Well, you you didn't see Dippy there. so I didn't. But this one really fills up the space nicely. And it's in a really dynamic sort of diving pose. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool. Plus... Dippy is just a cast of an American dinosaur, so you can still see the original here. And Dippy's still on tour, too, so it's not like Dippy's gone. You can still see it. But I think research casting did a great job with that blue whale. Mm-hmm, definitely. There's some hidden gems in the sides of that room, too. Yeah, what was the one? Mentelosaurus. Yeah, that was really cool. It's just kind of randomly in a little nook near the blue whale, but it's the holotype in a glass case, which is really neat. Mm -hmm. And then we also missed a couple of the holotypes the first time we went there. So then I ended up going back (laughs) a couple days later while Sabrina was doing her day job because I wanted to see the Archaeopteryx that they have, which is now the holotype. And also some iguanodon teeth, which were the original iguanodon teeth collected that gave it its name because they're sort of iguana-like in their structure. But I don't want you guys to miss it if you go there. So if you go in and there's the blue whale in front of you, there's stairs behind it and you have to go up those stairs. It's the only way to get to the exhibit where they have the Archaeopteryx and the iguanodon and a lot of other really important fossils. Like they have Darwin's pigeons and a first edition of Darwin's book. And lots of other really interesting stuff. So, yeah, make sure you make it up there. A lot of people didn't make it there because you kind of go into the room and you see the blue whale and then there are all these maps and you kind of go off to the sides without noticing that they have this exhibit up there. But it's called Treasures. (laughs) So it's definitely worth checking out. We also made it out to the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. And luckily, while we were there, we got to meet up with Eleanor, Sarah, Charlotte, Chris, and Anna. And... And they were from the Friends of the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs and also from Rent-A-Dinosaur. Yes. And Sabrina either made or is making. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. A really nice video of our visit to the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs. It'll be on YouTube. Yes. At some point. It may already be there. (laughs) And it was really neat to see because we've talked about them before, but they're basically the first ever dinosaur sculptures that were made for public display way back in the 1850s. So they're obviously very different than how we know dinosaurs looked now, but they're still really cool to look at, especially some of their heads. (laughs) And they also have a lot of other animals, prehistoric animals, and the more recent ones are definitely a lot more accurate because we found more complete skeletons by that point in time. But the Friends of Crystal Palace Dinosaurs right now, their main focus is just kind of preventing the sculptures from completely falling apart because they've fallen into quite a bit of disrepair, especially the ones that are kind of in the water. And then also the Megalosaurus apparently has a really big crack down its back. So it's really in a lot of danger of, you know, 
basically falling completely apart. So right now they're raising money to rebuild a bridge so that they can get back onto the island. The bridge had to be torn down for repairs to another thing in the area, basically a little dam that they have there. But they can't get on the island to sort of get the plants away from the sculptures or, you know, repaint them or do work on the new dinosaurs that need renovations done to them. So yeah, they really need this bridge and we already donated to it. But if you're interested in donating, you can go to spacehive.com slash bridges to the crystal palace dinosaurs <laughs> with a bunch of hyphens. But we'll post a link in our show notes so that you can get there if you're interested in donating because like I said, they're very much in danger of kind of falling apart. So they need to be able to get back onto the island yeah. to do regular maintenance. Well, the beauty of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, too, is it kind of shows you the history of science. Mm -hmm. Because they were all about being scientifically accurate and cutting edge for the Victorian age in the 1850s. It started in what, 1854 or so. But obviously our ideas of dinosaurs have changed and we've come to learn more about science and it's good to be able to see this moment in time and see how our understanding has evolved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they also included a lot of other sort of scientific stuff other than just the sculptures. So they put in all sorts of real fossils, like they had ammonite fossils and other marine fossils actually in with the dinosaur sculptures and some of the other sculptures. They had different rocks from to show the geologic layers in time as well. Yeah, and they, they recreated the stratigraphy of the Jurassic Coast, basically, too, off in one corner of the park, too. So you can, like, you can see, oh, this type of limestone means it's from the Jurassic, and, you know, this other sort of rock means that it's from the Cretaceous, and they have it all explained in these signs around it, which is really cool. And just like the Natural History Museum in London, there's something that you can easily miss, which is the original Hylaeosaurus head. Oh, yeah. Garrett had to run back to see it. Yeah, we were we had already finished looking at all of it, and they were like, oh, you probably noticed the head up on this hill. And I was like, no, I did not. And it's kind of weird because when you go through the Crystal Palace, so there's sort of a walkway around it. You can't really see the Hylaeosaurus head because it's facing away from the main path. But apparently its head fell off at one point. It was it, too heavy. Yeah, for and, you know, the way it was supported. So they replaced it with something lighter, but they left the original head on top of this little hill right nearby, and they say kids are always just sitting on it, which I think is funny that they just let people sit on it, because it's, you know, a pretty significant piece of history. But it looks really cool, and it's the only one that you can see up close. Yeah, we posted a picture of it on our Instagram. And obviously you can't see the other ones up close right now, because there's no bridge, so you can't get near them. But yeah, make sure if you go to the Crystal Palace Park, you kind of turn around when you're looking at the dinosaurs and see the hill and then go up and check out the Hylaeosaurus head up close. And then the last stop that we went to that's dinosaur related on that trip was the Oxford Museum of Natural History, where Professor Chris showed us around. Mm -hmm. And we got to see Megalosaurus. Yes, the original holotype bones. There weren't that many. No, but it was one of the nicer dinosaur displays that they had in the museum. Mm -hmm. And they also had a few other dinosaur remains in there, as well as, you know, the typical American dinosaurs like T-Rex <laughs> recreated in all their glory. Some non-dinosaurs too, like ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs. Oh yeah, for sure. Because the UK is just jammed full of those. There was a lot of that at the Natural History Museum in London too. Yeah. But the Oxford one had something that Mary Anning had found, an ichthyosaur. Oh yeah. I think Chris told us it was called like 
Mary's ichthyosaur. Something like that, yeah. And then there's a new plesiosaur on display that they just found in a quarry recently. Yeah. It was really cool. They're really well preserved and, you know, basically all of their bones are pretty amazing to look at. And then there's a couple things that you could easily miss here too as well. You can go up to the second floor, which doesn't have that many fossils on it, but it gives you a better look at some of the dinosaur mounts from down below. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's also this area in the back of the museum, which is actually a separate attached museum called the Pitt Rivers Museum. And Pitt Rivers was a guy who collected all sorts of stuff. He was an anthropologist, including some really macabre things like shrunken heads. Oh, yeah. But it's kind of fun to go in there and look around at just like this weird stuff this guy collected, including a huge totem pole that he shipped over from Canada in like the 1800s. As you do. Yeah. And I thought it was funny, too, because apparently the Guardian rated it as one of the top family-friendly stops, including both the Oxford Museum of Natural History and the Pitt Rivers Museum. But it seems like the Pitt Rivers Museum has a lot of weird stuff in there that you might not want to show kids. Well, maybe. Yeah. I think the shrunken heads was the only thing that got me. It was, it's very creepy. And if I was just walking by and glancing without realizing what it was, maybe it wouldn't have bothered me. You wouldn't have noticed it as an actual human head that has been shrunken down. Well, several. Yes. Pretty creepy. But we definitely need to go back to the UK because we didn't make it to the Isle of Wight, also known as Dinosaur Island, or Lyme Regis, also known as the Jurassic Coast, which are obviously good dinosaur attractions. And that's because it was about three and a half hours by train plus ferry to get there and we just couldn't make a day of it but if you're going to go there you should definitely plan in advance to kind of spend at least one day away from london and then you could probably check out both maybe a couple days since it takes so long just to get there yeah that's true so jumping into the news first up is a new dinosaur yay and it's a sauropod it is in fact it's three sauropods three individuals what's better than that (laughs) what's better than one sauropod three obviously three sauropods yeah so they found two juveniles which were about six meters or 19 feet long each and an adult which would have been about 12 meters or 39 feet long when it was alive and that seems pretty small to me that's shorter than a t-rex but they still called it a middle-sized rabachisaurid and as a reminder rabachisaurids are a group of basal diplodocoids. So you can think of, you know, that long whip-like tail that are characteristic of diplodocoids. So even though they're 39 feet long, it's a lot of that is tail, so it's actually not that big, at least in terms of sauropods. They managed to find most of the neck, the left front leg and scapula, part of a hind leg, about half of the tail, and most of the skull, which is incredible. Usually we don't find skulls of sauropods. Yep. Well, it depends who you ask. <laughs> That's true. Who are we talking to? I think Carrie Woodruff was saying that he's never had difficulty finding skulls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but most people do have difficulty finding skulls. This one was found in Nuquen, Argentina. And one of the authors told Fizz.org that it would have been pretty dry and barren when it was alive. So they were really surprised to even find a diplodocoid in that area because obviously they need to eat a lot of vegetation and they didn't expect a lot of vegetation to be around it when it was living. They named it Lavacatosaurus agrioensis. Lavacatosaurus comes from Rene Lavacat, who named the original Rabacosaurid Rabacosaurus. And then agrioensis is after the locality of Agrio del Medio, where it was found. 
Lavacatosaurus is from the Aptian to Albion of the Cretaceous, which puts it at between 100 and 125 million years old. So pretty old, especially for an Argentinian dinosaur. But the most exciting part, like I said, is that it has that really well-preserved skull. It's not quite the entire skull, but it does also have the jaw. So, you know, you kind of have trade-offs missing a little bit of the top, but having the bottom row of teeth is nice too. And having the skull is really significant because it's the first Rabacosaurid skull from South America. The only other well-preserved skull is from Nigrosaurus, obviously from Africa. And from the comparison between the two skulls, we can tell that Lavacatosaurus has a much more basal, sort of more Diplodocus-like skull than Nigrosaurus. And previously, all of the similar animals, we've had to recreate their skulls based on Nigrosaurus. So now it's a little bit more of a question of like, well, which ones had this Nigrosaurus-like skull and which one were more like Lavacatosaurus? The most interesting thing I think about the skull of Lavacatosaurus is that the upper teeth are both longer and wider than the bottom teeth. In fact, the upper teeth are about three times the size of the bottom teeth, which is very strange. You don't see a lot of animals where, you know, many teeth along the sides of the mouth are significantly larger on either the top or the bottom than the other end, because what do you do with teeth like that? They said that it might be evidence that they had a beak, that like maybe the teeth weren't used in sort of a typical way where they occlude, meaning they sort of rub against each other and they were just used to kind of grab onto vegetation, I guess. They also said that pores near the front of the skull might also indicate a beak. And they also mentioned a bunch of other articles which have proposed beaks for sauropods lately. But later on, they <laughs> put it as, quote, we do not rule out the presence of keratinous sheaths in the anteriormost edentulous region of the maxillae and dentaries, end quote. Meaning there might have been a beak at the very tip but they just didn't rule it out, and they suggest doing more analyses. So they're not really firm on the whole, <laughs> it had a beak. They're kind of like, well, it might have had a beak. A lot of other people think it might have had a beak, but we really don't know. Need more fossils. Indeed. and Or in this case, just need more analysis. Ah, uh, yeah. Because as is often the case, this paper is mostly about, this is what we found. Look at all this stuff we found. And then later papers will come out and they'll say like, oh, based on that previous paper, they found all this stuff and we think it means X. So hopefully those papers come out soon. The next story I want to talk about is all about the dueling dinosaurs and sort of the court documents over the rights of the fossils, which were just released. So Judge Rob Reno started the opinion and he said, quote, once upon a time in a place now known as Montana... <laughs> Dinosaurs roamed the land. On a fateful day some 66 million years ago, two such creatures, a 22-foot-long theropod and a 28-foot-long ceratopsian, engaged in mortal combat. While history has not recorded the circumstances surrounding this encounter, the remnants of these Cretaceous species, interlocked in combat, became entombed under a pile of sandstone. That was then, this is now. End quote. I see how you ended up down a rabbit hole here <laughs> or no wait what was it erectodromius hole <laughs> yeah well this is the only part of his opinion or really the whole opinion of the court that is written that way the rest of it is much more legalese 
but that is just a really fun way to start it. And actually, in one of their interviews, the judges were saying that like this was a really nice change of pace for a case because usually it's just like getting into this minutia about stuff that they see every day. But everybody loves dinosaurs. So it was fun for them. Yeah. <laughs> but to summarize this court case, it's been going on for quite a while. And this is, I believe, the first time we're talking about it. So basically, there are two parties arguing over who owns a whole bunch of fossils, not just the dueling dinosaurs. There are the Murrays, who hired Pete Larson, and then there are the Seversons, who hired paleontologist Raymond Rogers. And the Murrays have been using the land to ranch under various agreements from the Seversons since 1983. So it's not really like two new groups <laughs> battling over something. They have a, quite a long relationship. But eventually, the Murrays bought what is known as the surface estate and one-third of the mineral rights from the Seversons in 2005. But the reason that this court case came up is the document doesn't mention dinosaurs specifically. So in the part about mineral rights, they say like mineral rights including coal, oil, you know, a whole bunch of other specific minerals or other minerals. But whether or not dinosaur bones are minerals is kind of up for interpretation. The court documents also said that both the Murrays and Seversons at the time of the sale didn't know that there were any dinosaur fossils, especially valuable fossils, anywhere on the ranch. But then, quote, a few months after the sale, the Murrays discovered several rare dinosaur fossils on the property. They had the dueling dinosaurs, which were found in 2006. They also found a triceratops foot in 2007, which was sold shortly thereafter for $20,000. They found a triceratops skull in 2011, which apparently has been offered for sale for $200,000 to $250,000. And it was described by Pete Larson as, quote, one of the best, if not the best, triceratops skull ever found. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he was trying to sell it for them, so <laughs> it might be a little bit of hyperbole, but it's definitely a good specimen. And then finally, they found a nearly complete fossilized Tyrannosaurus rex skeleton, nicknamed the Murray T-Rex, which later got re-nicknamed Trix, mm. and they found that one in 2013. And that one has already been sold to the Naturalis Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands, and it was sold in 2014, so... <laughs> They prepared it and sold it very quickly. And they, the court documents say, quote, for several million dollars, but they didn't specify the exact amount. But unfortunately for the Murrays, all of those proceeds are in an escrow account while the litigation is ongoing. So back to the sort of story of the, the battle. The Murrays first told the Seversons about the fossils in 2008, and then they basically immediately began suing each other over ownership. <laughs> But I was kind of surprised that it was in 2008 because, you know, they got the rights in 2005 and then it said they started finding dinosaur fossils a few months later. So that means they found the dueling dinosaurs in early 2006. So if they had thought that they were minerals, they should have told the Seversons immediately because that's what it said was required in their mineral rights agreement. But I guess they've been contending this whole time that they think that they're not minerals. And... Like I said, the whole case is really about the definition of the word mineral. Even though the Murrays own the surface estate, it's kind of a misleading term because you might think, well, you know, all of these fossils were found on the surface of the land and therefore the Murrays own it. But really surface estate refers to all of the land, both surface and below, that isn't a mineral. 
<laughs> so it should really just be called like non-mineral land. That is confusing. Yeah. And there was a lot of arguing that was kind of interesting about which chemicals were replaced in the bone and how much of it is a mineral and how similar that mineral is to the minerals that normal bones are made out of because our bones are minerals by any sort of technical definition. I was just thinking we wouldn't be having this issue if this was in Lightning Ridge and it was all opal fossils. Yeah, that's true. That's a really good point because <laughs> opals would be by any definition a mineral. Yeah. <laughs> But what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ended up saying in a two-to-one vote is that the fossils are, quote, rare and exceptional and are minerals pursuant to the terms of the deed and belong to the owners of the mineral estate, end quote. So they decided that they are, in fact, minerals, which should mean, based on the terms of their mineral rights agreement, that the Murrays owned one-third of it and the Seversons owned two-thirds of it because they only sold... The Seversons only sold one-third of the mineral rights to the Murrays, so it's kind of weird. This is also a reversal of the previous ruling for the Murrays. So they had gone to the Ninth Circuit Court and won, the Murrays had, but now the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has gone for the Seversons, basically. I also thought the dissenting judge's comments were really interesting. The dissenting judge said that they shouldn't be considered minerals because, quote, Dinosaur bones are not economically valuable to be processed into fuel or materials or manufactured into jewelry. Further, dinosaur fossils are not mined in the traditional sense, but rather discovered by happenstance, end quote. And she also said that, quote, fossils' mineral properties are not what make them valuable, but instead the value turns on characteristics other than mineral composition, such as the completeness of the specimen, the species of dinosaur, and how well the fossil is preserved, end quote. Which are some really interesting points. Yep. <laughs> because they basically said, well, it's very valuable, and therefore it should be considered a mineral in terms of mineral rights. And she's saying, well, the mineral isn't the valuable thing. And you don't say that just anything that's valuable on the land counts as a mineral. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of an interesting distinction. Obviously, the Murrays could appeal this ruling, but the only court that's higher than the Circuit Court of Appeals is the Supreme Court, and they only accept about 2% of cases, so it's unlikely that it'll go there. Although they've got the dinosaur factor going for them. They do. <laughs> but usually the Supreme Court likes to go for like things that they think are going to be really relevant for future cases. Right. I don't know how like much paleontology enthusiasm is on the Supreme Court <laughs> right now. <laughs> but but it, you never know. It, it could happen. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely unique. It might be an important precedent, though, because the word mineral by itself now includes fossils in the Ninth District, which includes a lot of relevant dinosaur sites in Montana, Arizona, California, and Alaska. But technically, since it was a decision in the Ninth Circuit and not at the country level, like the Supreme Court, it won't include areas like the Dakotas, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, or anything east of that. So it's still sort of up in the air. And then I guess courts do sometimes use information from other areas. Like in this case, they were using a lot of comparisons from a Texas Supreme Court case. That's kind of where they ended up with the decision that, well, it's valuable and therefore it should be a mineral. So even though I think from my understanding of the way courts work, it doesn't create a precedent for the rest of the country, it could still sort of be used <laughs> as a precedent. I don't know. It's very confusing. I spent many hours reading about this and this is the best I could, I could understand from it. 
Yeah. So as you can tell, I find that pretty interesting. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't boring. <laughs> I really liked the opening remarks. Yeah. Of the judge. Yeah, it is really cool. I don't know if we knew the exact sizes of these dinosaurs before, but now we know the dueling dinosaurs are a 22 foot long theropod and a 28 foot long ceratopsian. Pretty cool. Yeah. I want to know more. Maybe you will someday. <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, they sold tricks to a museum, so there's at least a chance that they'll sell the dueling dinosaurs to a museum, too. Speaking of museums, the Museum of Natural and Cultural History in Oregon has found a dinosaur bone, and that's rare because Oregon was mostly underwater during the Mesozoic. Yeah. This one, they actually found the bone in 2015. The bone, it's a toe bone of an herbivorous bipedal ornithopod that lived around 103 million years ago, so in the Cretaceous. And Professor Greg Retaliak and a group of his students, they found the bone, like I said, 2015, on a field excursion near Mitchell. And the bone was found among a bunch of mollusk fossils. It's most likely that the dinosaur died on shore and then washed out to sea, bloated, burst, and then left the toe bone behind the to old fossilize. Float. Yeah, exactly. The ornithopod may have weighed nearly a ton and could have been more than 20 feet long, though it's really hard to say from just one <laughs> toe bone. Yeah. But it is the first dinosaur fossil from Oregon to be published about in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And dinosaurs have pretty unique feet, so they can be easily diagnostic enough to know that it's definitely a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. In Mexico, the first fossils of Parkosaurus have been found, tooth and vertebra. Parkosaurus was a bipedal, medium-sized ornithopod, herbivorous dinosaur, lived about 70 million years ago. These fossils were found in 2014, and scientists first thought that it was coprolite, <laughs> but it's now known to have been a tooth and vertebra. And the fossils were from a juvenile, so not too much information about it yet, but the first of this kind of dinosaur in, found in Mexico. So that's cool. In some other news, the Bank of England is going to be asking the public to nominate a scientist as the face of their new 50-pound note. The bank's going to have a six-week window. People can submit names of scientists, and they're going to use that as part of the selection process instead of having the public vote directly because then you get something like Bodie McBoatface. Yeah, you don't want that. Yeah. It's definitely better to have the public sort of narrow down a range, and then you can pick the final one. <laughs> yeah. Well, the terms are the scientist must be British and be dead. <laughs> can be male or female. <laughs> That's a really funny criteria. Yeah. Well, there's no date set yet for when the note will go into circulation, but it'll be after the new 20-pound notes introduced in 2020. But the reason I bring this up is because one potential candidate is Mary Anning, but there's many, many others to choose from. For some examples, they said Ada Lovelace, Dorothy Hodgkin, Rosalind Franklin, Alan Turing, and Stephen Hawking, just to name a few. Mary Anning should definitely get it. She's got some tough competition. She does. I think you were saying that Stephen Hawking has a lot of support. He's kind of the favorite at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> and last, Google Doodle, maybe you saw it, they recently honored Joseph Tyrrell. The doodle showed a man standing among a carnivorous dinosaur's bones in Alberta's Badlands, probably Albertosaurus. And you probably know the Royal Tyrrell Museum is named in Joseph's honor. He worked for the Geological Survey of Canada and found coal deposits in Red Deer River Valley, which was Canada's largest base for coal mining until oil and gas were found in Leduc in 1947. He also found the skull of Albertosaurus sarcophagus, which was named in 1905, the same year that Alberta became a province. And the discovery of Albertosaurus led to fossil hunting in Canada and many more dinosaurs being found, which you obviously know. You listen to our show. <laughs> 
Yeah, Alberta's a good spot for dinosaurs. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Matt. We're here the day after SVP with Matt Seleski at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science. And Matt is the senior exhibition designer for the Museum Resources Division of the New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs. He's also a research associate at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science. And he is the one who curated the excellent exhibition going on at the museum right now called Picturing the Past. Mm with a bunch of uh, paleo, amazing paleo art. <laughs> yeah, with a lot of different artists and varied media too, which is amazing. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me. This is, yeah, I'm just excited to get word out about the show, so. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us what inspired you to put together this show? Well, I've been coming to SVP on and off for quite a while, and one thing that I've noticed, there's always a group of artists that get together and the same conversations happen sort of meeting after meeting is how can we get, how can we raise the profile of the paleo artists that are part of the society? How can we find more opportunities for people to share their work and interact with the researchers and the scientists that are at the meeting? So when I heard that Albuquerque was going to be hosting it, that's where I live. So I thought I've got connections at the museum here. I'll, uh, I'll see if we can put together a juried show put out a call for entries and uh, see if the artists are, are interested in showing their work. And luckily they were very interesting. So. 
Nice. How long was that process? Was it like as soon as you found out it was going to be here or did you think of it a little bit later? Yeah. So we first heard rumors that it was going to come to Albuquerque, I think about two years ago. Hmm. Shortly after that, I think they firmed up that Albuquerque was going to be the host. Hmm. So that's when I approached the uh, host committee that's based here at the museum and pitched the show. And uh, luckily they were very receptive, very supportive. And uh, yeah, so we started working on it probably about a year and a half ago. Wow. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's better than a lot of times we see something like, oh, it's fossil, National Fossil Day in like a week. We really should have done something for that. (laughs) Well, you know, no matter how much you plan, there's always stuff that seems to happen at the last minute or, you know, you get behind or... or Yeah. Yeah. We heard one of R.J. Palmer's pieces got destroyed being shipped to the museum. That sadly, yes, there were a couple of losses in shipping. More than uh, one? Yeah, we had a, a, a sculpture damaged. Um, oh. oh no! That that didn't make it into the show, so we're, we're really sorry about that. Um, RJ's piece was a print, so luckily it wasn't mm-hmm. irreplaceable. But um, yeah, it was a beautiful piece. I'm sorry it didn't make it in, but yeah. he's got some other very beautiful pieces <laughs> oh, in the yeah. show that we're really excited about, and including then, a literal billboard in yes. the open yeah. exhibit. The Saurian T-Rex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was very proud of, of the work that he did on the Saurian T-Rex. And when I told him that it was accepted, he was like, I, I really want to blow this up life-size. Do you have room for it? <laughs> and I said, well, if we can't quite do life-size, but if you can do, you know, 10 feet tall, 30 feet long, we could, we could, we will find room for it if you want to do that. So. It's really good too, because the paleo art exhibit is kind of off to the side. But mm. if you see that huge T-Rex taking up the whole wall, you come over closer to it and then you go, oh wait, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't, can't beat a, a life-size T-Rex for an attract to get people into a show. Yeah. 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 That one's really cool. How many pieces did you put into the exhibit? Uh, I have one piece in the exhibit. Um, I uh, I submitted three, but uh, you know the, the jury was tough on me. So. Wow, <laughs> that's how no, you know they're not biased. Um, I mean, it was really it was a phenomenal um, group of entries that we had to work from. Uh, there were over three hundred and twenty-five individual pieces of paleo art that were submitted. Wow, for consideration by the jury, and uh, you know we could only fit in about, you know, I was hoping that we would get 60 good pieces. Mm-hmm. In the end, we ended up squeezing in 85. Wow. And uh, so, you know, there were a lot of really great pieces that didn't make it in. I've been saying all week that there's like another incredible paleo art show just in the pieces that weren't selected mm-hmm. for whatever reason by the jury. But right. uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So someone could just pick up the remainder and it cut out a year and a half of that planning. That's true. Right? Yeah. So you want to undercut the, yeah, the paleo art exhibit scene. Then, uh, yeah. I've got a list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the variety of mediums is amazing too. I, there was the, the cut paper, the quilt, what yeah, else? Sculptures. sculptures yeah. the, all the digital art. And I think there was a lot of hand yeah. illustrations as well, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a few uh, paintings in there. Um, and even a hand woven tapestry. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Someone spent 23 weeks on wow. really a uh, phenomenal piece. Yeah, that one's great. Yeah. Also, you have some pictures of some hominids that look like they're pictures of like real people in makeup, mm. but I yeah. guess they made some kind of like silicone sculpture, sculpture and then photographed it. 
Yes, those are um, Elizabeth uh, Danis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she's an artist in Paris, has a studio there, and I've known her work for a while. Um, but she, yeah, she does these beautiful, um, life-sized, very realistic, common in sculptures. And we couldn't convince her to ship one over from Paris, but she did send some <laughs> some great photographs. Yeah, they're crazy. Yeah. So nice. for some of the artists, you reached out to them and then others heard about it, I guess, through social media or something? Yeah. So luckily, you know, in having the kind of long lead time for the show, I think one of the benefits was we got word out fairly early. So we opened the call for entries, I think the first or second week of May mm-hmm. and had it run through the end of August. So um, that gave, it, gave us plenty of time to get the word out on social media. It was really interesting, though, with such a long call for entries time. You know, the first month went by. I think we had about 37, 38 pieces come in. Second month, we were up to about 80. And I was getting really worried because mm-hmm. we had a big gallery to fill. <laughs> so then I started really just like emailing every paleo artist I knew and said, hey, we've got this coming in and and won't you consider submitting? And a lot of people responded to that. But, you know, in the last two or three days of the call for entries, we got over 200 entries in just in that period. So it was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. And um, a lot of late nights cataloging all the entries and getting it ready for the jury. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. So how do you review the art did they just like send a picture or like a how did they send you the art to review it i guess is the question uh, so yeah with with that many entries there would be no way for people to send yeah actual physical pieces for us to review them all so we just did it all digitally okay you know, people could send like a five megabyte jpeg and in most cases that was that was pretty sufficient to figure out the quality of the piece and nice yeah 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 so yeah we just had this massive you know, spreadsheet that were shared among the jurors and, and everyone voted for each piece. How many jurors did you have? Uh, we did a jury of four. So okay. uh, myself, uh, Dr. Thomas Williamson, who's a curator here at the museum, and he was the head of the host committee for this meeting, mm-hmm. one of the co-chairs. Uh, Ralph Chapman, who is a former paleontologist at the Smithsonian. He's now retired and lives up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, mm-hmm. and is a longtime paleoart collector. <laughs> so I thought that was uh, a nice... Uh, voice or or someone who could come into the jury with a little bit different take on things. Yeah. And then uh, Mark Witten, who is an accomplished researcher and artist and Mm -hmm. also is doing a lot of great writing on the theory and practice of paleo art these days. Nice. Is he around here too? No, no. He's over in England. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So definitely couldn't, you know, get everyone together in the same room to to review all the work. So doing it electronically was the way to go. Gotcha. But nice. you did get a lot of them, I know for SVP, the welcome reception, a lot of the artists were able to make it. And then for opening night, right, you opened a week before? Right, we opened a week before because we wanted to um, capitalize on the big balloon festival that mm-hmm. happens here in Albuquerque the first weekend of every October. Mm-hmm. So we, we got the show open for that. And then the the main opening was during the welcome reception for the SVP annual meeting. And uh, luckily the... The president of SVP uh, allowed us to invite the artist to come to that without having to buy tickets to the conference. So <laughs> yeah. that was very exciting. A lot of artists took advantage of that, and and it was it was great to have you know about fifteen artists come in and rub elbows with the you know thousand plus paleontologists <laughs> that came to the, the welcome reception. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's actually my favorite part of SVP is that opening 
it's like a night at the museum kind of thing, but you're mm -hmm. just surrounded by all the people that like basically discovered the dinosaurs around you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's great. Or who worked on the things you're looking at. Yeah. And then if you throw on the paleo artist, it's really everybody because yep. like you created a lot of the drawings on some of the placards and information panels around the museum, right? Right. Yeah. So I worked 15 years at this museum in the exhibits department and helped design a lot of the displays and illustrate a lot of the signs and labels that people see as they come through the museum. So yeah. do you have a favorite exhibit in the museum? Hmm. I mean, there's, there's things I like about each one, but I say overall, I think my favorite might be the Triassic Hall. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a Triassic guy. <laughs> uh, that's, that's one of the time periods that, you know, there's so much strange and interesting stuff happening, evolutionarily yeah. speaking, but also, you know, being here in the, the Southwest United States, it's like prime Triassic country. So mm -hmm. I'm, you know, kind of literally surrounded by great Triassic stuff. <laughs> it's hard not to be inspired. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, you've got the Coelophysis shown all over the place in the museum. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. He's the state fossil of New Mexico. So. Yep. Yep. <laughs> cool. I also really like your Parasaurolophus display where you press the button and then it gives you the simulated or I guess simulated almost seems like too good of a word that's like a kind of a wild conjecture guess <laughs> about yeah, what it sounded uh, like <laughs> right i think it's a little bit more than a wild conjecture yeah yeah tom tom williamson mm -hmm. um worked on that that skull and and they had it it was i think one of the earliest um uses of cat scan invertebrate oh really yeah because that was in the they, in the 90s right when right they used it? yeah it was around mid 90s 96 97 mm -hmm. where they scanned it and then extrapolated from that acoustically what the what the resonance frequencies might be for air vibrating through those chambers yeah so, i'm sure there's a fair amount of speculation but <laughs> yeah. not groundless speculation yeah true yeah it's like all good paleo art right that's yeah. a good point yeah you need that room for you know creativity so it's mm. nice that with paleo art especially with soft tissue and stuff like that most of the time it doesn't fossilize so you can do a lot of interesting stuff and just say well, I think this is reasonable. <laughs> right. And I mean, depending on your take as an artist too, I mean, how much work you've spent with current animals and how well you know the anatomy and the what's realistic for yeah. how animals behave. I think that comes through in a lot of paleo artwork that you see. And you can tell the artists that sort of know that and have, a, have an understanding of that versus those that might be coming from more of a fantastic or, or speculative <laughs> background, which is not bad either. It's just different ways of looking at it. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So as a paleo artist, and what are some of the, I guess, animals that you've helped bring to life? Hmm. So yeah, when I was working here at the museum, I did uh, a lot of the the animals whose fossils are on display. So, mm -hmm. you know, Seismosaurus, Coelophysis, I guess Seismosaurus is now just Diplodocus, but uh, <laughs> still, uh, I did a lot of work on the uh, Aetosaurs, so not technically dinosaurs, but still some cool Triassic critters. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, oh, I did some of the first illustrations of Bistahi Verser, the oh, Bistai cool. Beast, the big Tyrannosaur that's kind of a one of the new stars at the museum mm -hmm. and um, Spherotholus, which is a New Mexico pachycephalosaur. Um, so, yeah. And of course, a lot of pentaceratops. <laughs> that was almost the New Mexico state fossil. There was kind of a, 
uh, a little struggle back in the 80s when shortly after this museum opened and they were debating what should be the state fossil. <laughs> it was down to Coelophysis and Pentaceratops. <laughs> yeah. The Ceratopsians are well represented, though. You needed a good Triassic dinosaur yeah. in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't say I'm sorry that Coelophysis won out. It's... <laughs> It's a, it's a pretty unique thing, and the, and the bone beds up at Ghost Ranch are, are just phenomenal. So yeah. yeah, what were they saying? Over like a hundred individuals or something like that have been found there. Some crazy number of coelophyses. Yeah, that feels low to me almost. <laughs> I think. Yeah, it's, I mean, if you look at those blocks, there's and there's you know there's they did two major excavations and and pulled out just tons and tons of rock each time and shipped them to museums across the country. So I don't know if there's I know there's been some um, work that's been done on cataloging all those things but that's amazing it's amazing to have such a large representation too because then you can start to look at you know ontogeny and differences between the individuals and maybe even sexual dimorphism if you can get enough data yeah but, <laughs> i mean again yeah again it, it gets very i don't know if contentious is the right word yeah but, right <laughs> some people have thought they've seen things and other people have discounted that but yeah. uh, I, I did a little work uh, trying to reconstruct the ontogeny of coelophysis mm -hmm. uh, when I was here at the museum and it's it's an interesting field and uh, yeah. I think yeah. there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. So. I remember it, at a couple of the talks them showing sort of the the path of how they grow and we think of it with like humans, we kind of all grow in a pretty similar fashion. But with dinosaurs, different things develop before. So sometimes like the skull will develop a little bit more mm. than you might expect it to before certain limb elements. Mm -hmm. So there's like lots of different paths. So if you're not careful, you could pick out one of them and think like, oh, that one must be a male because it looks a little different this way. But it might actually just be not all the way developed and doing some slightly different development. So. Right. It's really interesting. Coelophysis is one of the coolest dinosaurs, if nothing else, because we have so many of them, so we can learn so much. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. What was your process like then in piecing together the ontogeny? Uh, so I was working with um, the paleontologists here, and they were, they actually, they, um, instead of trying to find uh, particular specimens and, and identifying morphological features they were looking at sort of gross measurements and then running statistical analysis mm -hmm. and then figuring out where sort of the the bins that the the specimens fell into so um i did sort of a kind of like a generalized based on that work uh what your average you know one-year-old coelophysis might look like oh, cool. what your average two-year-old three four-year-old or adult so that was kind of fun so it was not it was not like reconstructing this particular specimen and and having the exact measurements I could work from. It was taking this average data and uh, figuring out what that looks like, which is kind of cool because it would be relatively easy to test, I think, although mm -hmm. I haven't done that. You know, you could like look at particular specimens and say, well, does that fit into this framework or does it totally collapse it and it all falls apart? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's really, it's nice to have kind of an average one because then you can find the unusual things too. Like sometimes things get described and then later on we find out, oh, that was actually an injury mm. that we thought made it unique. Right. <laughs> so it's nice to have that basis. So as a research associate for the museum, can you talk at all about the kind of work you're doing? Sure. So um, I'm still sort of poking around in the Triassic and the Permian, uh, working with some of the researchers here on uh, 
uh, some of the fossils because there's great, you know, Permian and Triassic exposures in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. At the meeting this year, I was able to present on a new uh, pelicosaur, so a relative of Dimetrodon, uh, that is close to being described, and um, very excited about that. So that should be coming out soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we've got some more uh, Permian critters in the pipeline, and uh, and then yeah, I'm anxious to get back to the Triassic stuff too. <laughs> nice, yeah. That's like you said, some of the weirdest time in in history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of lot of experimentation seem to be going on, and, and <laughs> things you know getting settled out after the big uh, Permian Triassic extinction. So yeah, um, we don't have the record from right after the extinction here in New Mexico. It's more towards the middle and, and later Triassic. but mm. uh, When still. the dinosaurs started showing up. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, when we run out of dinosaurs, we're probably going to have to expand to some of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we're but still a ways. <laughs> they find dinosaurs like almost every week, so it's, it's hard to even keep up at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> absolutely true. Cool. And then... In your new role as the senior exhibitor, exhibition designer. Ex- yeah. Yes, thank you, <laughs> senior <laughs> exhibition designer. Yeah, what kind of work are you doing there? Uh, so I'm doing uh, uh, planning and design for displays at the uh, state museums in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, so the Museum of International Folk Art, uh, the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture, the New Mexico Museum of Art. I work with the curators at each of those museums to pick their pieces and put them out on display. Nice. So it's it's a lot of fun. Not a lot of dinosaurs, <laughs> but um, but a lot of some, you know, when you're displaying a fossil or you're displaying a pot or a painting, um, there's still a lot of the same things you have to consider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's still you're still trying to tell a story through objects, which is kind of common to all museum exhibits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were completely ready to do the the paleo art exhibit then. Yes, yeah. yeah, it was a nice sort of culmination of all my my uh, background and skills. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, do you have any plans? I mean, it, it just opened, but, you know, the, the next kind of paleo art exhibit or something along those lines? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I hope there's a, a something else coming up. I definitely plan to keep having conversations with both uh, SVP and the museum here. Uh, and see if I can show people that we've we've gotten a successful model for showing paleo art. I think the feedback that we've gotten at the meeting has been phenomenal. And the public feedback I've heard from the museum here has been very good, too. I think this took a lot of people by surprise. Mm-hmm. And, um, and everyone's really excited about it. So hopefully we can build on the model that we started here and and have more paleo art exhibition opportunities for yeah. artists in the future. Yeah, I that'd hope be so. great. That's our favorite kind of art. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. We bought. I don't know how many things we bought. Yeah, too many. I don't even know if we have space <laughs> in our on our walls. <laughs> and it's awesome to be able to meet the artists. Like you had so many of them here that you know you can talk to them about their paleo art and they'll explain their process and like why they decided to put or not put feathers on something or. You know, even sometimes they're working directly with the person who discovered the dinosaur. So they're trying to highlight a very specific element. Like Brian Eng was telling us about one illustration and how there's a specific area in a cave that's kind of a Goldilocks zone where most of the life seems to happen. So he tried to depict that in the art. 
And it's once you know that story behind it, it makes it even more enjoyable to look at. So yeah, yeah, and and as artists too, it's great to, you know, hear how other artists are working their process because we all do this slightly differently, mm-hmm. and we're not always really good about talking to each other about how we do it. So <laughs> just to be able to show your work in front of your peers and and get through that is is really fun. Yeah, I saw a lot of artists just really excited to meet each other and share mm-hmm. what they were working on and just like really excited about their own and the other people's work. It was great. Yeah. So if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, where is the best place to find you? Uh, probably the best place right now is on Twitter. I'm, I'm more active there than anywhere else. Uh, my handle is Drops, which is uh, an obscure... Uh, <laughs> Almost defunct, but not quite Permian synapsid name. Uh, so it's C L E P S Y D R O P S. Nice. <laughs> and then how long is the exhibit open until? The exhibit's open through the end of the year. So nice. if you come by before January 1st, you'll be able to check out some great paleo art. And a lot of it's for sale, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, um, and selling quickly. <laughs> yeah, do your Christmas shopping. But, uh, yeah, we're very, very excited. I haven't checked lately, but after the meeting reception, I know they've, they've sold about nine pieces at that point. Yeah. Hopefully more this week. So, <laughs> Cool. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks again, Matt. We always love talking about paleo art. Yeah, that was one of the most amazing exhibits I've ever seen. I really, really enjoyed it. And make sure that if you want to see it, you get there soon because it's only there through the end of the year. And the pieces are selling fast if they haven't sold out already. Yeah, we bought one (laughs) (laughs) of an ankylosaurus. So that one will be going to our home. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Don't worry, we'll post a picture. Yeah, I'm excited. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to the dinosaur of the day, Crichtonsaurus, slash Crichton Pelta, which was a request from Marcos, so thanks. It was an ankylosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now China. It's possibly the oldest known ankylosaurian. It's not clear if it had a tail club, though. It was herbivorous. It probably ate low-growing vegetation. Gregory Paul estimated that Crichtonsaurus was about 11.5 feet or 3.5 meters long and weighed up to half a ton. But Crichtonsaurus is a dubious genus. It was found in 1999 at Xiafuxiang in Liaoning province in China and described in 2002 by Dong Juming. The type species is Crichtonsaurus bolini, and the name means Crichton's lizard. It's named for the author Michael Crichton. And the species name is in honor of 
Bergerbolin, a Swedish paleontologist who went on expeditions in China in the 1930s and described many ankylosaurs and also found the tooth of Peking man. That's random. Yeah. (laughs) So they found a lower left jaw and three teeth, and two other specimens have been referred to Crichtonsaurus. They included the vertebrae, shoulder blade, humerus, thigh bone, coracoid foot bones, and osteoderms. They're missing that all-important skull, (laughs) which is how a lot of the ankylosaurs are named and sort of classified. True. In 2014, Victoria Arbor said that the two specimens, though, couldn't be referred because there was no overlapping material to compare. And she also said that the holotype didn't have any unique characteristics and that Crichtonsaurus bolini was a nomum dubium. And then in 2007, Lu Jingchang and others described a second species called Crichtonsaurus benchiensis, and that species name refers to the Benchi Geological Museum. It was found in the same formation, the Sunjiawan formation, as the same one that the type species was found, and they found a complete skull. Oh. And so Gregory Paul suggested that Crichtonsaurus benchiensis was a junior synonym of Crichtonsaurus bolini, but Arbor found some differences between the two species in the shoulder blades. Though she found Crichtonsaurus bolini to be a nomum dubium, she suggested that Crichtonsaurus benchiensis was a new genus, Crichtonpelta benchiensis. She found other unique traits to Crichtonpelta, including a small bone on the cheek that pointed upwards. And Arbor also said that a skeleton at the Sihutan Fossil Museum, known as Crichtonsaurus bolini, is probably Crichtonpelta benchiensis. In 2015, Crichtonpelta was formally published and then became a separate genus, and it was published by Victoria Arbor and Phil Curry. So Crichtonpelta means Crichton, small shield. Yeah, pelta is a pretty common suffix for ankylosaurs, for sure. Mm-hmm. And four Crichtonpelta specimens have been found. The holotype, which was found in the Sunjiawan formation, a second skeleton without a skull found in the same quarry, there's the Sihutan Fossil Museum specimen, and a fourth specimen that was described in 2017 by Jing Taoyang and others that had a skull but no front snout, but it came from the same quarry as the others. So fortunately, it looks like Crichton Pelta is probably here to stay, mm-hmm. even though Crichtonsaurus is a goner. <laughs> yes. Well, they're all technically goners, right? <laughs> I suppose <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so the Crichton Pelta holotype is a bit larger than Crichtonsaurus was estimated to be. It's about three to four meters long or about 10 to 13 feet. And if you want to learn a little bit more or read it in another form, we actually mentioned Crichton Pelta in our book, The Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2015, because that's when it was formally published. Nice. And our fun fact of the day is all about that T-Rex named Trix, formerly the Murray T-Rex. And it was named Trix after the recent queen of the Netherlands, Beatrix. I would not have guessed that. Yeah, apparently a lot of people came to the museum and recommended it and they just decided, okay, enough people have said it that I guess it's his name now. (laughs) But we mentioned about a year or two ago that it toured around for a bit, but now it's at its permanent home at the Naturalis Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands. And it's about 13 meters or 43 feet long and stood four to five meters tall or 13 to 16 feet tall when it was standing upright. And like I said, that's longer than that sauropod (laughs) that we were talking about earlier in the show. Although it's not nearly that tall in its pose in the museum because they mounted it with its head really low to the ground and they did that they said partly to give it sort of a different view so you'd be eye to eye with it but also because they mounted the original skull and not a cast on the specimen and it's really hard to support those big heavy skulls so it's easier if it's near the ground you can support it a little better 
In total, the fossils of Trix weigh about 13,000 pounds. While it was alive, it's estimated that it had a similar weight of about 5,000 kilograms or 11,000 pounds. And it's also estimated to be the longest lived T-Rex found to date at about 30 years old. Sue is estimated to be 28, so not that much older. (laughs) According to Pete Larson, it's the third most complete T-Rex found after Stan and Sue, which he also prepared. So I guess he's prepared all three of the most complete T-Rex specimens. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. And the sale price was estimated to be about 5 million euros or about 6 million US dollars when the museum in the Netherlands bought it. And it got to the Netherlands via a commercial jet from the U.S., along with 250 regular paying passengers. They showed it being loaded in the back of the plane where you would expect the seats to be. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And they gave it like a little passport to go with it and it had all these specially wrapped trucks and things to get it to and from the airport. They really made a whole spectacle of the purchase. It's pretty cool. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our Patreon page for cool rewards at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.